1: Previously on All Relative, defining Diego.
2: Oh, it's all three hands. Diego,
3: have a great game. What? Do (laughs) you Me, Carter and Gavin look a lot like, except for the glasses and age? Same hair, same eye color, same face, basically. We're not made
2: of the same DNA, but similar. What are they going to do for her birthday? Whose birthday? Julia's. Well, they'll probably think about her and be sad.
1: Like, did you ever consider when you adopted me, this baby could get, like, really sick? Or did you ever feel like you had to blame Isabel or anything for, like, I don't know what I'm trying to say.
2: Send you back?
1: Yeah. <laughs> like, damn, can I get a
2: refund? <laughs> uh, no. Okay, I mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was never able to really look at stuff through your lens, so I'm kind of curious. Like, the first night when we get into that hospital, what's going through your head?
2: It was surreal, It still is. I mean, I remember until then you had been super healthy. You you rarely complained, but you had this monster headache and we took it seriously. We called the nurse line. They said, go to the ER. They took your blood pressure. They took you in the back room right away because it was so high. And I know you remember this too. They kept changing machines, changing nurses, taking it again, taking it again. I think next time the doctor came in, we said, we're just going to go. We can come back for an appointment or whatever. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. I told you it was serious. Not only are you not going home, but you're getting admitted. You know, I I wanted to punch him. This is my fucking kid you're talking about. Like, he's like such an arrogant little prick. You know, then this news that what you had could kill you. And that there were only, well, three ways for it to end. You could die. You could go on dialysis. You could get a transplant. Your kidneys were failing.
1: One way or another, it was gonna get really
2: bad. I mean, you were just 12. So we had you to protect and worry about and love.
1: Was it the kind of love where you're like we may only have a limited amount of time with him?
2: I just knew that that you weren't going to have a regular life. I'm not going to say you have a death sentence but you're probably not going to live as long as a healthy person would live. Does that make you sad? Yes. We knew you were an athlete. We knew how great you were at running, jumping, blocking shots, soccer, whatever you tried to do physically. And you were noticed for it, and you were proud of it, and we were proud of it. And um, I mean, just like for us to have that switch flipped, you were going to have to find a different kid to be. It was so sad.
1: I mean, I think I was really just like preparing for seventh grade. I was focused on school, as dumb as that sounds, and sports.
2: But all of a sudden, there you are, starting in the ER, and a bunch of doctors were telling you you had kidney disease
1: I think I really liked the drama (laughs) it created so I was like oh cool this will be a really fun story to tell you know why I missed the first day of school but (laughs) I didn't think it was going to be like a lifelong journey
2: you know I knew it would be at least that I knew your diagnosis would change the next few months but also it was going to affect the rest of your life And even that idea of the rest of your life was a question mark. Like, would you even have a rest of your life? What do you remember feeling? You know, I don't panic. But in this case, I kind of did panic. And you know, I don't cry. But in this case, there were a few nights that I actually cried myself to sleep. Like the whole time you were in the hospital, I did. But then, you know, I knew I could figure out what it meant that you had kidney failure. I knew I could look up the best places for you to get medical care. I could be there for you. I could love you and comfort you and care for you when you got sicker, like they said you would. But what I couldn't do, because I had no clue about it, is I couldn't predict that adoption would make this hard thing even harder.
1: Well, it did, because you're not my biological mother, so it would have been better if we had the same kind of blood. And genetics matter when you need an organ transplant.
2: Yeah, we didn't know what to do. When you got sick, we were just figuring it out a day at a time in survival mode. No more trips to Guatemala, no hockey, nothing like our old life. And, of course, we didn't know whether you'd be okay or all the ways that this ordeal might scar you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I'm still alive is because I was adopted. And I have to live every day knowing that my sister died. And I'm still here. I'm Diego Shikai-Luke.
2: I'm Laurie Stern.
1: And from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is all relative. Defining Diego. Episode 5 When Everything Changed. For a long time, we held on to two different stories that we had heard about why my biological sister Julia died. One, that she died from an illness, another, that my birth father had kicked her in the stomach. We didn't know what was true, but when doctors told me I'd need a kidney transplant, that was a pretty big clue.
2: Yeah, we didn't tell you this at the time, Diego, but one of the first things Dan and I did after your diagnosis, is we went to the office and we dug out that tape from 2005, that interview with Isabel, when she told us about Julia. How
3: did Julia die? (laughs) How did Julia die? She had a problem with her stomach and her kidney. Then she died slowly because she doesn't have money to take her to the hospital.
2: It was like listening with new ears. There it was, loud and clear. Isabel said Julia had died of an illness of the stomach or kidney. That must have been horrible for you. It's a shame. Yeah, it was
3: hard for her.
2: She wished you were here to help Julia. So after we saw the tape, we were just gutted on so many levels. I mean, there it was. You and Julia probably had the same illness, and it was an illness that probably killed her.
1: Yeah, and then I think, Just on top of that, knowing that I was able to get treated for this, um, you know, and she never did.
2: And then we were constantly reminded that you were adopted because the doctors would come in and the first thing they would ask was, what was your family history?
1: Even though we have a relationship with Isabel and my family, it's like, we don't
2: really know anything medically about them. Nobody could tell us what was wrong with your kidneys. It could be genetic. Maybe, we couldn't be sure. But either way, the treatment was the same. And our job was to protect what little kidney function you had left.
1: I went to the hospital on my 12th birthday, August 28th, What a birthday present.
4: Okay, and then uh, your birthday. Tell me all about your birthday this year.
3: My birthday was the stupidest, dumbest birthday that sucked. Like, and I'm always gonna remember.
1: About a month after my diagnosis, dad decided we should sit down for annual interviews. I think it was probably for posterity. Maybe it was like, in case I did die. I remember us sitting down in the living room.
4: So what what do you you hope for this year?
3: I hope that they can figure out what's going on with my kidneys so I can start to have more salt.
2: In the video, you're sitting on the couch with your knees tucked up under you You were coloring your hair. It had bright red streaks back then. For you, it was all about what you couldn't eat. I
1: mean, one of the big things was I wanted to go to Punch Pizza. They're very salty pizzas. (laughs) And I remember being disappointed really badly because I wanted to go there, but it was just too high sodium.
3: Oh, and you know what I want for my birthday? A bacon cake. It sounds kind of goofy, but that's, that would be, that's like a dream now. Like, no more bacon, no more, like at Burger King, I can only have, like, two fries, maximum.
2: You know, Diego, that diagnosis knocked us back. But at the beginning, the changes were small and manageable, I mean, you know I'm not much of a cook, but I got out the rolling pin and made a low-salt homemade pizza. And for a while, you actually ate it so you could have pizza again. But then, gradually, the changes got bigger. Like, you were diagnosed at the very beginning of the school year, and by spring, you couldn't play sports anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just remember being tired.
2: Yeah, you started wanting to take naps all the time. I knew it was a symptom of kidney disease.
1: One of the first things I really remember was just like how much I fucking hated labs, man. I mean, it was just like, I felt like it was just a waste of time.
2: Why did you feel like it was a waste of time?
1: Because I had to wake up early <laughs> and drive to the doctors. So I was like, I don't want to do that. Let me sleep in.
2: Yeah, we hated going there because there was never any good news. It was always bad. You know, Dan and I were pretty good about putting one foot in front of the other, doing what had to be done. But sometimes all the crap you were going through, it really got to us.
4: There was a a time he was in a hospital room, and they were coming to wheel him away for a procedure. And he had been doodling on a piece of paper paper. And so this day, he gives me a doodle and says, here, Dad, hang on to this, as they wheel him out of the room. And I thought about the doodle, and I thought, you know, this could be one of the, the last things that I ever see from him. And... I just got, it just really, that's when it hit me, it's like, oh my God, this, you know, he could die and this could be the end of his life. And here I sit with this stupid fucking drawing of some Smurf or something. And I felt just terrible about it.
1: My kidneys were just getting closer and closer to total failure. I can't feel it. But uh
3: Yeah.
4: When you say you can't you can't feel what
1: the kidneys like go. Right. Okay. Another year, another interview with Dan in the living room. This time I was thirteen. So
4: you don't feel any different, you just know. You know Yeah.
1: Yeah,
3: that's kind of what makes it worse because Like I don't think I'd really know if it was like starting to fail or not because you can't feel it, but you just know and it's just like a time bomb that you can't see but you can hear it and you just don't know when it's like you're tied behind. I'm tied behind a pole, looking this way at a wall. There's a time bomb behind me and I can hear it blinking in any second. It could just go off and that's kind of what it feels like. You're just waiting for that. Explosion or the transplant to happen. Yeah,
4: it and sounds really hard to live with.
3: See if you survive. She's crying.
2: All I knew about sick kids up until then was what I read in the news. Nobody in my family got sick until they were old. But you getting sick made me rethink the whole idea of my family, because Julia.
1: Yeah, I mean, Julia was in the back of my mind this whole time, and she still is.
2: Before you got sick, I thought of her as your biological sister. But now I could really feel how strong this link was between you and Julia and me and all of us. I hadn't seen the full picture of what our family was.
0: After the break, this is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast, where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations Knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Diego, it was hard because as a parent, you're supposed to at least pretend you know what you're doing, but I had no idea. I mean, the doctors gave us a bunch of what-is-kidney-failure books, but nobody told us whether we should let you sleep all day if you felt like it, or whether it was okay to act as sad and worried as we felt. I mean, the diagnosis would have been awful no matter when you got it, but there was something about it being on your 12th birthday. I mean... There you were, about to wrap up childhood and enter your teenage years, and you were completely ambushed.
1: I think we all were.
2: Yeah, we were. And then, as all of this was going on with your kidneys, you were turning into a teenager.
1: I was pissed. So I remember the first time I got expelled. It was at lunch. And I brought a lighter to school. So I was lighting it up at the table, and the teacher walked over and was like... What's going on? And I said, fuck you. You're a bitch. And I ended up throwing an empty milk carton at her, and it hit her in her head.
2: Yeah, in the interviews, you and Dan talked about your behavior issues. In this interview, you were 13, and your face was looking kind of puffy.
3: I might have deserved it. I don't know, because, you know, life plays out with what cards you get and maybe I did something wrong, like in poker or whatever you call it, when you have to, what is it called? When you fake that you have a bad hand, wow. I the bluff, like I bluffed wrong or something. I don't know, that's kind of like, I'm just saying it could have been my fault. I don't know why. Uh, but I can tie anything to anyone. Like, if someone dies, it's their fault for not killing themselves and staying alive, and then they died the way they died. So, we're all gonna die. This is a pointless rant, just <laughs> going off.
4: Yeah, but I just want you to understand that, you know, it's not your fault.
3: I know, I'm just saying that's what I think. I like to yeah. think it's my fault. Well. Okay, whatever, next question.
2: Back then, you were angry and sad and tired, and you were getting in trouble all the time. And as your parent, it was really hard to know how much slack to cut you. Like, did homework even matter? Did school even matter? I mean, I think, honestly,
1: at that time, you guys cut me a little too much slack because every time I did something, it would be, oh, don't do it again. And so for me, I kept like pushing the limits of like, what can I get away with this time?
2: Why were you doing it?
1: These situations I would put myself in was something I felt like I actually had control over. So was a point in my life where I really felt like I didn't have a lot of control.
2: And I was just trying to figure out how to keep you safe from kidney disease, but mostly from yourself. Your kidneys lasted for about a year and a half. They gave out in January of 2012. That meant you had to go on dialysis. You were 13 and a half.
1: Dialysis was hell. They kind of sit me down. It's just like this big, nice recliner. They got a big TV and they got this big remote, which is like the size of a notebook. The goal of dialysis is to get all the toxins out of your body. Because my kidneys were failing, I'm scheduled to do dialysis three times a week, four hours each session. I remember the first time I'm looking down at tubes sticking out of my chest connected to my heart. There are two tubes hanging and I see my blood go through the tube and kind of snake its way up to the dialyzer and then we watch it come back. It's like two licorices into your chest. Blood will go out one and then come in the other after it goes through the machine.
0: So I'm going to have to move your machine over to
2: see how that wire is a little tight. Just don't move too fast. There it goes. Wow. That's amazing. What? Your blood There's coming button. and going.
1: I'm really just stuck there, kind of at the mercy of this machine. And the first couple weeks go by. It's pretty good. I can just nap. I'm tired. And then they start taking off more toxic waste. So they're taking out two pounds and then three pounds. And that is when the cramps began. I remember the first time it happened. It started with my pinky toe like it just started curling in and then like all my other toes started to curl in and then it worked its way to my heel to my calves then it was in my abdomen in my fingers in my neck in like every muscle was just constricting and cramping and I would end up in like this fetal position, begging for them to take me off. Like, just just end it, just take me off. And of course they couldn't because, you know, it's the only thing keeping me alive. Okay.
3: What did you think about the part? Is it about what you
2: expected?
3: Better, worse?
1: They had sewed a port into my chest. It connected to the dialysis machine. And I tore that out.
2: It was an accident. It was super scary. We were over at our friend's house and you kids were jumping off the roof or something. You were acting like your old self, like a daredevil, not like you were sick. And then you came into the kitchen and told me you thought you had dislodged something.
1: And so I end up in the ER with this nurse and eventually i was like okay i, I got to pee and she's like okay i'll come back and i was like no like i i want to go like by myself like just let me go to the bathroom and she's like nope i start unhooking my port from like the antibiotic and the nurse comes towards me and i'm like if you come near me i'll hurt you And she kind of walked over to me to try and like stop me from doing it. But I ended up kicking her. And she just like flew back against the wall and left saying, I'm not working on that little shit anymore. And I'm just, you know, bawling my eyes out. And dad just hugs me and is like, it's okay. Like, it's gonna be okay. I just told him like I don't want to die tonight.
2: But the nurse ended up pressing assault charges, a pediatric nurse in the ER who you think would have known something about sick, angry 13-year-olds. On top of everything else, now we had to deal with juvenile court.
1: Yeah, I dealt with it by getting thrown out. How stupid do you have to be to get thrown out of juvenile court?
2: We walked in, and it was all black and brown kids, and they gave you a form that asked what race you were. And I put down human, duh. And then we handed it
1: in, and the guy in the uniform behind the bulletproof glass handed it back to me and called me a smartass.
2: Yeah, and then you had to rip it up and tell him to fuck off.
1: And, you know, then he called the sheriff's deputies to haul me out.
2: You thought you were so tough, and I thought... Now the shit's going to rain down.
1: But then you fixed it.
2: Yeah, I fixed it because I could. I mean, everything we're talking about goes to privilege. I'm white and middle class. I just called a prosecutor friend, and he made sure that when you went back to juvenile court, you had a chance to explain yourself. You just got a good talking to. And I didn't have to fill out any more forms.
1: I was a brown kid adopted by a white lady, and that's what made the outcome completely different.
2: When I looked into it, I saw that other people with kidney failure got organs from family members. So Dan and I got tested to see if we could give you one of our kidneys, but we didn't match. Our blood markers were just too different from yours. Your blood markers weren't typical in the Midwest. I remember I called an adoption research institute and I asked, what about adopted kids who need organ transplants? But they had nothing for me. They hadn't looked into it. So you started doing your thing, emailing everyone you knew. Yeah, I sent an email to about 30 friends explaining the situation. I knew it was a long shot that any of them would be willing to do it, and an even longer shot that any of them would match. But
1: then, Melody stepped up.
2: Yeah, Melody from work. You know, I didn't know her very well. I just knew she had young kids, and her parents were from Taiwan. You know she wasn't a perfect match, right?
1: But she was good enough to do the transplant.
2: What can we say about how generous that was? But you know, every time I thanked her, she made it sound like it was no big deal. It was just part of her faith.
1: Yeah, but it saved my life. On August 1st, 2012, I ended up getting a kidney transplant. You know, I was excited, I was nervous, I just remember the week before, I'd wet my bed like three times, and I didn't have control of my bladder anymore. And so it was this big relief, and also this big question. I remember standing in the hospital room and looking out the window in my gown, and thinking, what's it going to be like when I get out? Stay with us.
4: Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana, or is she just
0: a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent, or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air, or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to
4: find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together.
1: It's the family that I suppose she's never had.
4: And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. Infamous. So, dude, mm. you know it was like a year ago when I talked to you last. Yeah. And uh, you seem to be really tired. How come?
3: Because you woke me up. <laughs> oh, I don't care.
1: this conversation is from December 2012, a few months after the transplant. I was 14. I was wearing a real Madrid soccer jersey. I could feel the fire in the fireplace behind me.
2: You were done dyeing your hair, but your eyes were swollen from all the meds you were taking. You didn't look well.
1: What
4: about your uh, lack of friends? I don't mind that. Mm -hmm. What about your lack of activities?
3: That's fine with me.
4: So does it make you kind of sad that you don't have anybody to hang out with or anything to do?
2: Mm-mm. You were through the transplant, but you weren't done being sick. You were sick and angry and surly. I thought physically you were probably getting better, but I wasn't sure where your head was at. And I really wasn't that sure about your body either. Do you think
4: you're recovered? I don't think you're recovered yet. Mm-mm. Why do you think you aren't
3: recovered? Because I still don't feel well. The meds aren't right and everything. I'm out of breath and I'm in. My cartilage and bones are in a lot of pain. And my teeth, are, like, I have the inflammation of gums. And the doctor said, the dentist said, that I might need to get a laser thing to cut open my gum and remove it, all this stuff. Did my mom tell you about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That whole winter, I was like, whatever. Go to school. Don't go to school. I just mostly wanted to sleep.
2: Yeah. And you had lost a year. You had to repeat eighth grade. So that spring, you started back at a new school. And it was great. We loved it. And I thought things were looking up. I mean, maybe we were going to finally catch a break. Until, do you remember that morning in April?
1: I was feeling a lump grow around my neck. Like, I had it for like two or three weeks before I actually told anyone. But it got bigger, and we were like, okay, let's go get it checked out.
2: It looked like a golf ball.
1: Yeah, it was like a golf ball underneath my skin. I was joking with my dad, and I was like, yo, I bet this is cancer. And he was like, no way it isn't. But yeah, we put five bucks on it, and... Then we got a call to come in for the biopsy results.
0: So, um, thank you guys for coming in today. Uh, we just spoke with pathology, actually, we just got off the with of them, and um, we do have some information back on the biopsy that he had from the lymph node.
3: Would you mind closing the so, door? I'll close the door. Yeah. Sorry.
0: So. Um, so basically what, what the lymph node pathology shows is that, um, that, unfortunately, Diego
4: has lymphoma.
3: Called it. What
4: type of lymphoma?
0: So what it is, it's a, it's a lymphoma that involves the B
2: cells. It was a kind of lymphoma you can get after transplant. And for most people who get it, it's treatable.
1: When we got the cancer diagnosis, it was just like, okay, what do we do now? What next?
3: Raise your head with your bed up a little bit and then
2: you're back. You're fine. You just keep doing your thing. I'm just
1: telling you so you know what's going on. I went through chemo that summer, and I just remember the nurses were so nice. You know, they'd come in and play games with me, but, you know, mostly I just wanted to sleep. I didn't lose my hair, and I didn't throw up once. And on August fifteenth, 2015, I got to ring the bell just before my 15th birthday.
2: And I never knew until you did it that ringing the bell is a worldwide signal that someone is done with cancer treatment. It had been three years from your kidney diagnosis to the end of chemo. And it would take another couple of years to get back to anything like healthy.
1: Yeah. I think we were all scarred by those years. I mean, my scar from the transplant is about a foot long, and it's curved like the blade of a hockey stick.
2: I think we all got, like, both tougher and softer from the whole thing.
1: It was
4: really the most miserable four years of uh, my life, and I would never wish it on anybody. Uh, No parent should have to go through it no one should have to go through it.
1: Well, in my case, I definitely have some uh, survivor's guilt, where I know, like, my birth family doesn't have access to medical care, and that just makes the survivor's guilt much worse.
2: You know, I, I hear survivor's guilt, but I don't know what it feels like. What does it feel like?
1: I mean, for me, survivor's guilt is, is really manifested itself in, in the form of motivation, where, like, I feel so guilty, I feel like I have to act on it. I would m- like to have just died in my hometown, like Julia. That's how it should have been.
2: You'd rather be dead?
1: In some sense yeah i mean i feel like that's that's the survivor's guilt it's like that should be me i should be in a cemetery buried next to julia so the life i'm living is just extra time and i have to like make the most of it
2: You know, Diego, I don't know how many teenagers have to confront mortality or survivor's guilt, but you were dealing with those things your entire adolescence.
1: I mean, in some ways, the whole thing helped me understand how privileged I am to get medical care, to get help in court, all of it. I mean, you guys found me a living donor. And at the same time, adoption definitely affected my illness. I think even in ways we may never fully understand. But... When I think back on those years now, it's kind of like the sickness crowded out everything else. You know, it drowned out so many other parts of me. Like, I never actually got to see my full potential.
2: We'll never know who you would have been if you hadn't been sick. And then even after getting through a kidney transplant and cancer and all the rest of the things you went through, I was sure things would get better, but they didn't. They actually got worse. And for a while, I wasn't sure our family would hold together.
1: Next time on All Relative, Defining Diego.
2: I was butting heads with the both of you all the time. You're like, I will go to Guatemala. And
1: Dan and I were like, fine, good, go. We're glad you're gone. We don't want you here.
0: then Papon,
2: that's her father. Shikai. Shikai.
3: We ultimately made the case that it was unconstitutional to deny a child a right to a family.
1: Get all episodes of All Relative to Finding Diego ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge, our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of this show, but you'll get ad-free binge access to tons of other great shows included on The Binge channel. Plus, every month subscribers get a binge drop of a brand new series that's all episodes all at once. Start your free trial to The Binge by visiting the All Relative Defining Diego show page on Apple Podcasts or visit GetTheBinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. All Relative Defining Diego is a production of Something Else in Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Lori Stern. And me. Diego Shikai-Luke
2: Mio Warren is our senior producer Associate producers are India Witkin and Kyra Asabe Bonsu Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Jude Kampfner, and Tom Koenig Lizzie Jacobs is our editor Dara Hirsch is our engineer And we had additional
1: mixing by Sam Bear. Production management help from Ike Igbatola and Lily Hambly
2: Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. Translation by Dolores Ratzan Our adoptee consultant is Eric Mann And a special thanks to my dad,
1: Dan Luke. Thanks for raising me.
2: Nobody brings the blubber like you do.
1: If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music,
2: Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.